This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a nook of normality in a nasty world. And the number one show about medical preparedness, mostly because it's the only show <laughs> on the interweb about medical preparedness. <laughs> a lack of competition is not a bad thing. That's true. That's true. It's like Back to the Future. If by future you mean nursing home. <laughs> God, I'm old. And who am I? I am Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival <laughs> website, doomandbloom.net. And here is my wonderful co-host, Amy Alton, <laughs> also known as Nurse Amy. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife, and in your words, purveyor of amazing first aid kits. <laughs> That's right, at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so sharp, I'm running out of band-aids here. Oh. Ouch. <laughs> You're funny. Now, on this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, the unconventional medical wisdom, and if you're still awake, random thoughts by somebody way too old to have coherent thoughts. Whatever it takes to make your family medically prepared for tough times, you're going to hear it here. But first, got to listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't, wise guy. What's a little zombie apocalypse to you? But answer me this. Who's got to keep your family healthy when the spy balloons come hovering, when the oh my gosh. Russian bombers fly overhead and all the other Please, no. crazy, crazy things that no more. could possibly happen Ugh. in the future? But what if something really happens? The hospitals are out of commission and somebody is sick and injured. Who is going to be in charge? Also, don't look at me. I am just a piano player. <laughs> I'm looking at you, friend. You can bet that when it's least expected, you're going to be selected. So get off your duff, learn some stuff, and why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? Amy can tell you where you can find some. Yes, as I mentioned before, <laughs> store.doomandbloom.net. I actually have a couple newish videos. One is on the medium kit, and one I just did recently on my minor wound care kit. So... That's up if you guys want to see what's in my kit and see what you guys need to add to your own kits. All sorts of stuff in our entire line of medical kits, all quality, a lot of them one of a kind. I want to mention that the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded and revised, ranks 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon. Over more than 2,000 reviews, it's still high on bestseller list throughout the country. If you haven't checked out our greatly expanded new book, you'll find the black and white version at Amazon and the color version at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral bound version. Yes, special on... spiral bound That's version. Right. Okay. So I've often said that the family medic has to obtain knowledge, training, supplies if they're going to be affected. But how much of all this stuff is enough? That's one of the most common questions that I get. How much? Now, unless you live on the moon, you know the state of the world is making people more and more uneasy. Violence is rampant. Peace is fragile. Gosh, so many casual preppers are now becoming more serious about their preparations. And that means a real inventory of medical items needs to be done. They've got to figure out what they currently have and what else would be useful if the you-know-what hits the fan. Now, what would be a good way to evaluate how medically prepared you actually are? Having a pile of stuff in a storage bin and a first aid book, that's helpful. But you need materials and knowledge to become an effective medic for your specific situation. So you've got to do sort of a status assessment. To make a, a realistic assessment, a number of questions have to be asked and then answered that clarify your job description and the factors that make you a true asset. 
this should be asked well before the you-know-what hits the fan, so might not be a bad idea to ask these questions now. Ask yourself, what are your responsibilities? Now, it goes without saying, as a group medic, you're responsible for the medical well-being of your survival community. Well-being, however, is rather vague. What does it mean for you, your job description, the people you care for? It means that in addition to being the chief medical officer, you're chief sanitation officer. It's your duty to make sure that sanitary conditions at your camp or retreat don't cause the spread of disease among the inhabitants. Poor hygiene and sanitation, well, those are constant problems off the grid and threaten the health of every group member. Sanitation issues don't end with the hospital tent or sick room. They come with some unexpected responsibilities for the medic who must also assure the proper treatment of drinking water, the preparation of food, cleaning of work surfaces. Other duties will relate to supervising things like latrine placement, construction, and maintenance. Didn't think you'd have to deal with that. You've got to pay attention to these details if you're going to be an essential part of a program for community well-being. You also have to be chief dental officer. Military medics in remote field locations often report that those people that arrive at sick call actually are complaining of dental problems as much as medical problems. Anyone who has suffered from a bad toothache knows that it affects concentration, certainly work efficiency. You can't get your mind off that bad tooth. In many cases, the pain so extreme, it's the only thing on your mind. Now, decreased work efficiency, that means that the important daily activities required for survival may not be performed. To be effective in primitive settings, the medic has to know how to deal with various dental issues. Yes, dental issues. Toothaches, broken teeth, lost fillings, all sorts of stuff like that. Proper planning, therefore, right, includes the accumulation of appropriate dental supplies as well as medical supplies. And we talk about dental supplies a lot on our podcasts and in our articles. Now, you're also the chief counselor. It goes without saying that a societal collapse would wreak havoc with people's minds. The medic, therefore, has to deal with depression and anxiety as much as they're going to deal with cuts, broken bones, and gunfights at the OK Corral. Hopefully, those things won't be daily occurrences, but psychological stress, they certainly will be. In these circumstances, you're essentially the chaplain. You're going to have to sharpen your communication skills to meet the mental and emotional needs of your group, as much as their medical needs. A good healthcare provider also understands the importance of confidentiality in all their patient contacts. Having the trust of the members of your group greatly increases your effectiveness as the medic. You're also the medical quartermaster. You've done your job, accumulated all these medical and dental supplies, but who decides when you break them out and use them? You do. Can't be done by committee. You and you alone should really be in charge of that. When are you going to dispense your limited supply of, for example, antibiotics? When the you-know-what hits the fan, these items aren't going to be produced due to the complexity of their manufacturer. At least I assume they're pretty complex. Careful monitoring of supply stock and usage, that's going to allow you to assess the group's ability to handle medical emergencies. And certainly there's going to be situations when you feel pressure from others to use some scarce items. The group, therefore, should, in advance of such a circumstance, recognize your authority to make these decisions. At the very least, discussion as to when to spend certain items should always occur before a disaster event. You're also a medical archivist. That's an interesting one. The medic is responsible for the documentation of group members' medical histories and their progress when you treat them for different problems. Seems like a lot of work, and perhaps it might be, but a good archive will help you remember all their medical conditions, all their allergies or medications, and if your survival community is large, it might be almost impossible to memorize all of this information. The actions you've taken on each person are important to put into writing. 
One day you might not be there to render care. Your records are going to be a valuable resource to the person who's in charge when you're not around. And you're, of course, a medical educator. You can't be in two places at once. You got to make sure that others in your group have some basic medical knowledge and training. It's important that they can take care of common injuries or illness while you're away. Some injuries require quick action and the training you impart can save a life. These responsibilities are many, but they can be modified by the makeup of your group. You got a pastor or other clergy in your circle, well, they may be able to take some of the burden of counseling away from you. If you have someone skilled in engineering or water treatment or waste disposal, well, they might be able to use their knowledge to help maintain sanitary conditions at the retreat or assure healthy filtered water. Make sure to take whatever help that you can possibly get. Now, another question is what scenario are you planning for? That determines your medical supplies in a big way. Many people are now concerned about the situation in Ukraine. I mean, the idea of tactical nuclear weapon deployment is actually becoming less hard to believe as the war drags on. I mean, if such an event occurred, it's not out of the realm of possibility that a war involving some kind of nuclear exchange could actually happen. I mean, recently one Russian strategist even floated the idea of setting off a nuclear bomb in the Yellowstone caldera. Now, I don't know what that would do, but it probably isn't good. Now, this scenario has specific challenges that is going to confront the survival medic. Massive trauma, burns, crush injuries, radiation sickness, these are just some. Add to that the likelihood of mass casualties. Indeed, more than one member of your family or group may be injured or ill in this kind of event. A large number of supplies, similar to what you'll find in the contents of our large backpacks at store.doomandbloom.net, they would be required to deal with multiple casualties at once. Now, the supplies that you're going to need aren't just trauma-related. Outside of the nuclear destruction scenario, there are various natural disasters that can overwhelm the existing medical resources. Even a massive solar flare could knock out the power in your area for the long term. And if that's the case, water treatment failure, lack of refrigeration, that's going to lead to food contamination. Without significant stockpiles of materials to disinfect water, properly cook food, non-perishable foods maintain good sanitation, you can expect a return of a lot of epidemic diseases of the past like cholera, yellow fever, things like that. Antibiotics and other medications like loperamide might be very useful in these circumstances. Now, many medical kit makers, I should say this, claim their products can handle the needs of a specific number of people. Uh, enough supplies, let's say, for 25 people, for 50 people. Others claim that the supplies inside their kits are going to suffice for a group's medical needs for a period of two, three, or five years. This is, of course, absolutely impossible to gauge with any type of accuracy whatsoever. Take the example of an injury with severe bleeding. Let's say a liter or two of blood has spurted out of a torn femoral artery before you can stop the hemorrhage. I'll bet it would take all the dressings that you have in your storage to absorb that amount of blood from the wound. That means that you'll need more commercially made or improvised dressings that you currently have on hand to function as a medic for more than one incident. Better than that, you might consider the expensive but more effective blood clotting items like Quick Clot, Celox, or Kytosam. These can stop severe hemorrhaging in three minutes with simple pressure. Now, if your family's camp is near a group of armed hostiles, your people will be at more risk for these kinds of injuries. You're going to certainly need much more in quantity and variety of items like bandages, tourniquets, and blood clotting dressings than if you lived on top of a mountain with no other humans around for 25 miles. So in reality, no medical kit should be advertised as being sufficient for 50, 25, or any other number of people. One major disaster or hostile encounter can wipe out the contents in one day. What a medical kit can handle also depends greatly on the specific family or group. 
the demographics of its members, how perilous the conditions are. Even in decent off-grid scenarios, survivors are going to get injured performing acts of daily survival to which you're not accustomed. Let's take chopping wood for fuel as an example. If your survival group is composed of lumberjacks from the great northwest, you'll probably end up with fewer injuries than if you handed axes to a bunch of accountants. Now, how about the simple transport of water to base camp? If your group consists of 28-year-old ex-Marines, you're probably going to have less problems lugging five-gallon buckets from a water source than if you assign the task to your grandmother and eight-year-old niece. Therefore, the amount, variety, and longevity of medical supplies depends so much on the situation, it's simply impossible to guarantee that this or that amount is enough. The best medics can do is accumulate as much as their financial resources and storage space can accommodate. If there is such a thing as surplus medical supplies, remember them might make great bartering items, something we'll talk about in the near future. Obtaining these supplies is not something that you really feel should be done all at once. You want to dedicate a small amount of money to buy items every month and work in some time regularly to improvise maybe bandages from old sheets. You should not feel that the more advanced supply lists are your responsibility to accumulate alone. Your entire group should, under the medic's coordination, contribute to stockpiling medical stores over time. The accumulation of medical knowledge is even more important. Your members should be working to learn how to stop bleeding, to wrap orthopedic injuries, care for people bedridden with infections and other medical illnesses. If you have these skills, start teaching. I mentioned a little bit about your provisions for the specific demographics of your group. So what are your provisions for special needs? There are special issues for which you have to provide. And that depends on who's in your group. The medical needs of children or the elderly are going to be different than the average young adult. Women have different health problems than men. You have to know if group members have a chronic condition like diabetes, asthma, things like that. Failure to take health histories into account could be catastrophic. For example, would you be prepared if you found out a group member required adult diapers? I'm guessing probably not. And what physical environment will you live in? Is your retreat located in the cold? If so, you're going to have to know how to keep people warm and how to treat hypothermia and other complications of exposure. If you're located in a hot climate, you're going to have to know how to treat heat stroke. If your environment's wet and humid, well, people who are wet and humid chronically, they don't stay healthy. So you have to have a strategy to keep your members dry. If you're in a dry desert-like environment, you're going to have to have a strategy for providing a steady supply of clean water. Now, some people live in areas where all of these conditions exist at one point or another throughout the year. These considerations might even factor into where you would choose to live if a collapse is imminent. Now, how long are you going to be needed as a medic? That's another factor. Some catastrophes, such as tornadoes and hurricanes, might limit medical access, well, for a relatively short period of time. A societal breakdown, however, could mean that there's no availability of advanced medical care for the foreseeable future. The longer you're going to have to be the healthcare resource for your group, the more supplies you're going to have to stockpile, the more varied those supplies should be. If the catastrophe means a few weeks without medical care, you can probably get away without, for example, I guess, equipment to extract the diseased tooth. If it's a true long-term collapse, however, that equipment's going to be very, very important. Spend some time thinking about all the possible medical issues you might face at the end of the line if you're the caregiver for your family. You've got to prepare a plan of action to handle each one. Take precautions to be ready for issues that may occur in the future, such as even a birth control strategy for a daughter who maybe has not yet even reached puberty at this point. These are things that you have to take into account if you're going to be the medic in a survival setting. Today's episode of the Survival Medicine Podcast is brought to you by the feminine beauty product, Photoshop. Ladies, are you dissatisfied with your face and body? Would you like to look perfect at all time and get rid of unsightly wrinkles, blemishes, and other imperfections? Well, then try Photoshop. 
Photoshop serves as foundation, eyeliner, eyeshadow, mascara, eye whitener, colored contacts, lipstick, pore minimizer, hair dye, and even as your own personal plastic surgeon. Enlarge your eyes, fix your nose, lift your face. And that's not even talking about below the neck. Photoshop will immortalize your beauty, and no one will ever be the wiser as long as you never go out in public again. That's the miracle of Photoshop. Lock your door and get it today. Hey, here's a segment of our show where I take questions posed to me in the past, often on our friend Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast. If you have questions you'd like to hear me address on the podcast, send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Well, here we go. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. I guess by now you've heard of the chemical emergency caused by the derailment of a Norfolk Southern train in early February. The Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, reports that the hazardous materials included 115,000 gallons of vinyl chloride in addition to other chemicals. Shortly thereafter, officials decided to actually set the vinyl chloride on fire, which led to health hazards for the surrounding community. Exposure of toxic vinyl fluoride puts the residents of East Palestine, Ohio, at risk due to contaminated air and possibly the water supply. In the air, vinyl chloride is an irritant. If the water is contaminated, vinyl chloride can enter the air when the water is used for showering, cooking, and clothes washing. Long-term effects of vinyl chloride exposure could be widespread, involving things like the nervous system, the lungs, the liver, the bones, and the entire immune system. Over time, the risk of several types of cancers increase. Damage to the reproductive system of both male and female lab animals has also been reported. Now, of course, the response to a chemical emergency is varied, depends on the substance involved. Each agent has a different effect on the human body. Now, the list of dangerous chemical agents is a long one. includes things like acids, chemicals that burn and corrode people's skin, eye, or mucous membranes, blister agents, also called vesicants. These are chemicals that severely blister the eyes, respiratory tract, and skin on contact. Blood agents, poisons that affect the body by being absorbed into the blood. Choking agents, chemicals that cause irritation and swelling of the respiratory tract. Incapacitating agents, uh, these are chemicals that cause an altered mental state or unconsciousness. Long-acting anticoagulants, poisons that prevent blood from clotting properly, leading to hemorrhage. Poisonous metals, nerve agents, organic solvents, riot control agents like pepper spray toxic alcohols, and even vomiting agents, the chemicals that cause nausea and vomiting. Of course, chemical weapons are largely prohibited nowadays by the Chemical Weapons Convention, that's the CWC, the treaty that outlaws their production and use. Of course, almost all nations have signed the treaty. North Korea is a notable exception. But the risk of chemical attacks by terror organizations still exists. The deliberate use of lethal chemicals dates back to the first poison-tipped arrow. Historical examples of natural and man-made substances used to cause mass casualties abound in history. The ancient Greeks, for example, commonly poisoned the water supply of besieged cities. On occasion, would use sulfur fumes on defending forces. During the French conquest of Algeria in the 1840s, French troops trapped a thousand Berber tribesmen in a cave and used smoke to kill them. The invention of tear gas in 1912 came just in time for World War I. From 1914 to 1918, both sides used chlorine, sulfur mustard, and phosgene gas. Tens of thousands of artillery shells filled with these substances were employed during the duration, causing 1.3 million chemical casualties and close to 100,000 deaths. 
A young Adolf Hitler, as a matter of fact, was temporarily blinded by a gas attack in 1918. Although the League of Nations, an early version of the United Nations, ratified a chemical weapons ban in 1925, Benito Mussolini of Italy used mustard gas when he invaded Ethiopia. Although not used on the battlefield in World War II, hydrogen cyanide gas, also known as Zyklon B, killed millions of civilians during the Holocaust. Later in the 20th century, incendiary chemicals like napalm and herbicides like Agent Orange caused deaths and long-term ill effects. Several incidents of chemical weapons use in Syria were reported in 2013 and 2017. So what to do in chemical emergencies? Chemical attacks and accidents, such as an overturned tanker truck, train derailment, or a terror event, may render an area dangerous. Common sense dictates evacuation as the wisest course of action. This is not only to prevent physical contact, but also to avoid noxious fumes that may be carried by the winds. Given the wide range of chemicals, be sure to seek and rapidly act upon the advice of local emergency departments for the specific event, if they still exist. Evacuation may involve going to an emergency shelter. If so, notify others of your plan of action and take additional supplies and medications that the municipality may not have in sufficient quantities. Know what their policy is regarding pets. The schools your children attend may have their own plan of action for chemical emergencies. Be aware of their disaster protocols. There are so many different chemicals, and each might require a special method to neutralize. To absorb a small spill comprised of inorganic acids and bases, there are commercial neutralizers like FastAct. Some sources suggest that a 1 to 1 to 1 mixture of unscented kitty litter, sodium bicarbonate, that's baking soda, and dry sand is actually good for most chemical spills involving solvents, acids, and bases. Another option is to absorb certain spills with absorbent pads or non-flammable pillows to suppress vapors, or vermiculite, the type that's used in gardening. Some chemical emergencies could make going outdoors risky. Leaving might put you in harm's way, so sheltering in place is arguably a way to get some protection until help arrives. Sheltering in a vehicle, however, is a last resort as vehicles aren't airtight enough to protect you from noxious fumes. If you can't evacuate the area, choose a room with as few windows and doors as possible. Some gases sink to the floor, so a second-story room is preferable. Notice how different this strategy is from most natural disaster plans where a basement actually might be the safest place in the home. Of course, you want to shut outside doors and windows as soon as you're aware of the emergency. Locking and taping them will make a better seal against the chemical. Turn off air conditioners, fans, and heaters. Close the fireplace damper, vents, and any place that air can enter from outside. Go into the designated safe room. Shut the door. Turn on the radio and keep a cell phone available. If it's necessary to drink water, drink safely stored water, not water from the tap. Consider shutting off the valve for your house. That may help avoid contamination of the existing water in the pipes. If you run out of water, you can drink from the toilet tank, but not from the bowl, or release some from the hot water heater. Some types of chemical exposure involve direct contact. As many substances, especially in liquid or solid form, can penetrate clothing and be absorbed through the skin, it's necessary to remove and safely dispose of contaminated clothing. A thorough body wash with soap and water is needed to protect both the victim and medical personnel. The faster this is accomplished, the more effective the decontamination. Once the chemical has contaminated the water supply, showering may spray it onto you. When taking off chemically drenched clothing, avoid pulling it over your head. Cut it off instead. When removing clothing from others, make every effort to avoid touching contaminated areas without hand protection. Things like rubber kitchen gloves would be a good idea, maybe tongs, other methods that avoid contact with the skin. Place all dirty items in a biohazard bag and seal it. 
Eye damage from chemical exposure, that can be severe. You want to remove any contact lenses and rinse eyes with clean water for 10 to 15 minutes. You want to hold the eyelids away from the eyeball while moving the eye in all directions. If you have eyeglasses, wash them with soap and water. With any luck, a chemical emergency will only last a short time. Despite this, your shelter should always have the usual basics. A good first aid kit, flashlights, battery-powered radio, extra batteries, a means of communication, food and bottled water. You want to store at least one gallon of water per person in plastic bottles as well as non-perishable foods with a long storage life. That's one gallon of water per day per person. Towels and plastic sheeting. You may have to cut sheeting to fit your windows, doors, and vents. Duct tape can be used to form a better seal. And of course, this is the absolute minimum of necessary for a short-term event. Longer-term disasters require much more, which we've talked about many times. In modern times, you can call 911 or your local poison control center for more information. Some specialized materials not normally included in medical kits are useful for chemical spills. They include rubber or other chemically resistant gloves, aprons and boots, gowns, brooms and dustpans, safety goggles, gas masks. You should know that N95 and other respiratory masks, well, they may provide some protection against certain airborne infections, but they're insufficient to protect against most noxious chemicals and gases. Plastic spatulas and shovels, plastic hazardous material bags, five-gallon buckets with lids, drum liners, baking soda, some sodium bicarbonate, and maybe vermiculite with product used in gardening. Hopefully, you'll never be involved in a major chemical emergency, but it's the responsibility of the survival medic to know about any crisis they may face in times of trouble. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, Please support our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. And now for something you'll really enjoy. Hey, Nurse Amy here. I just want to talk about an herb that I'm growing and I really love, especially for cooking, and it is thyme. If anything, is it spelled T-H-Y-M-E, if everyone's not aware of that. Probably most of you are. But anyway, it's actually been used medicinally since the first century. The Greeks considered it a remedy for nervous conditions. The Romans used it to treat melancholy and to relieve those who had fainted or even suffered an epileptic attack. Although probably those people just kind of recovered on their own. I highly doubt that this time had an effect. But you know what? They probably felt like something's better than nothing. In medieval Europe and England, it was used to cure everything from digestive upsets to rheumatism and menstrual complaints. Thyme tea was a cure for coughs and flu, which actually we'll talk about in a little while. That's pretty much what we use it for today. In recent centuries, it's gained popularity as an effective treatment for digestive problems also and lung issues. Until World War I, thyme oil served as a battlefield antiseptic, which I think is super interesting because that's another thing that we do talk about these days is that it has topical antiseptic properties. Today, herbal practitioners recommend thyme for coughs, colds, flu, bronchitis, and asthma. They also give the herb for digestive upsets as thyme has a relaxing effect on the smooth muscles of the stomach and the intestines. There are actually more than 220 species in the genus Thymus, T-H-Y-M-U-S, most of which are low-growing, often ground-creeping, all evergreen shrubs native to the Mediterranean region. 
The most familiar time is suggested by the species vulgaris, meaning common, is thymus vulgaris. A perennial shrub often clamoring over rocks and dry gravelly soils, thyme grows to like about 12 inches. Rubbing the leaves releases a pungent lemony scent, the fragrance which we know as thyme. Native to dry rocky soils of southern Europe, thyme is particularly associated with Spain, Portugal, southern France, Italy, and the mountains of Greece. It was grown in English gardens by 1548 and known to be cultivated in American gardens by 1806 or earlier. Historically, a form of narrow leaves has grown in gardens on the continent in northern Europe and referred to as narrow-leafed thyme. The wider leaf of the form grown in Europe was called broadleaf thyme, English thyme. Whatever its origins, common thyme is highly variable. Common thyme has been a staple of pot herb or sweet herb of gardens for centuries. Thyme is propagated by seeds, cuttings, layering, or even root divisions. Of course, you can ask a friend for a division or buy a plant in almost any nursery. To remain true to the plant's desired genetic traits, it's best to propagate by cuttings or root divisions. If grown from seed, unexpected variation may occur. Thyme likes room to spread and should be given at least one foot of spacing. After three to four years, it tends to become woody and die out in the center. Kind of like my rosemary becomes woody right in the middle. Clumps can be divided to expand plantings and improve appearance. Thyme likes light, warm, dry, well-drained soil with a slightly alkaline pH. Let's talk a little bit about a therapeutic use or therapeutic uses for thyme. Um, commonly, we've been using it in modern times for coughs, colds, and flus. It's one of several fragrant herbs that doubles as spices and medicines, which is great for your garden. The aromatic compounds, also called essential oils, are the important part of thyme leaves and flowers. The oil in thyme helps to relieve coughs and probably in two different ways. Thyme is an antispasmodic and an expectorant, meaning that the herb not only calms coughs, but also helps to clear bronchial mucus. So that junky stuff you have, it helps to thin it out and get it out. It's also antibacterial and antiviral. Many bacteria and viruses shown in lab tests tend to be inhibited by thyme oil are the same ones that cause upper respiratory infections and colds, possibly support its long-standing traditional use. Few clinical trials have examined the use of thyme for coughs or respiratory infections, of course, because there's really no money in it for research and development. They find out that thyme helps with these. They're not going to make any money off of it because we can all just grow it, and it's cheap to buy. One study used a popular product using thyme with evening primrose oil in people suffering from bronchitis. The group taking the thyme product showed less coughing than those taking a placebo capsule, which is something that's just probably a, a plain oil, like an olive oil or something that has a, an odorless smell to it. So they couldn't tell which one was the active ingredient and which one was the placebo capsule. However, the study, which does not separate out the effects of thyme by itself or in other types of infections or coughs, does not offer conclusive results. But you know what we know is whether it works for you. And that's all that really matters. So how to use it? You can steep one to two teaspoons of fresh or dried thyme, leaves or flowers, in one cup of water and drink three times daily. 
You can produce capsules or syrups. You have thyme extracts that are available in capsules or also in syrups in a variety of dosages and strengths. These products combine thyme with other herbs thought useful for respiratory conditions. Specific use depends on each product. There are some precautions. Time is generally safe, especially when consumed as a tea or an infusion made by steeping time in hot water. Stomach upsets are rare. Consumption of time essential oil, as with any essential oils, should be avoided in high doses or for long periods of time. <laughs> time. Time being T-I-M-E. So, Let's just talk about making a thyme tea. You can steep one teaspoon of the dried thyme leaf in a cup of hot water. Cover the cup with a saucer so that the oils that are coming off of the thyme do not evaporate into the air. They stay into the cup and into the water. Strain and add honey to taste. Honey complements the expectorant action of thyme by coating the back of the throat. In fact, even just a few spoonfuls of honey spread out through the day, one in the morning, one a couple hours later, help to coat the throat and are also known as antibacterial and antiviral. So honey is a real good combination for this. Drink the cup of tea several times a day for cough. So this is my little talk on time. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We really appreciate it and we hope you come back for more and visit us at doomandbloom.net or my store where we create kits, first aid kits, and I have some supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Indeed, that's all the time we have. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alton, I'm Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.